Hi everyone, it's Joaki Makren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast. Podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. This is the eighth episode of Ask Me Anything, where I answer questions that you, the listeners, have sent over to elitegamedevelopers.com slash anything to that form and filled it out. So I'm still taking a lot of these questions, so please do go there and, and input your, your question. I'll, I'll get it answered soon on an episode. But yeah, today we're going to be covering a lot of fundraising topics and some some discussion as well about game development. This first question comes from Danny, who asks, can you have two lead investors if two VCs are interested in your company? Thanks for this great question, Danny. Uh, This is one of the happy problems that founders sometimes have. You've done the right things to create interest or it might just be that the timing is really right for you and things just click. Like back in 2013, when we were raising our Series A round for Next Games, it was just after Supercell had been bought by SoftBank and the VCs had revitalized their interest in gaming after the not-so-successful IPO of Singa. Uh, so which had brought down a lot of the interest in 2012. So timing matters a lot, but it still comes down to having the right team and often the right kind of traction to have the possibility to actually have several VCs knocking at your door. So if you are happy uh, in this kind of situation where two investors want to lead the round. I would say like there's there's a few additional ca- questions that you'd want to ask yourself. So first, uh, are the terms that they're offering very different from each other? Uh, the usual difference will be in the valuation and the amount that they're offering to invest into the company. Um, the term sheets that VCs issue can have several other terms uh, which are to be considered but mostly the difference will be in the amounts and the valuation uh, that they're issuing so naturally uh, you'd compare these offered terms and want to pick the the best best one meaning the higher amount and the highest valuation but actually it isn't that simple and i'll explain to you why why there's not that simplicity that that you'd want to pick the best uh, valuation best like the highest valuation and the highest amount that you can get so i'll answer that with the next question so the the thing that you want to look at there that if the terms are exactly the same which vc would you go and pick in that moment so as I previously mentioned in content that I've posted on Elite Game Developers and on the newsletter, founders should always be picking a VC based on what they can do for you without the money. Like, uh, will they help you with the business on hiring, networking, 
product feedback, troubleshooting, like just growing the company, like seeing things happen in their previous career and being actually able to point out like this is what you should be thinking about next. Um, so one big question is that will they be there with you uh, when things go bad? So uh, I would always pick the investor who will be the most help outside of the financing. So if the terms aren't outrageously different from two VCs competing for your uh, for you to pick them. I would always pick the VC who you would really want to work with versus the one who has the best offer on the table. Um, and then you might think uh, to ask if you should make these VCs compete against each other by revealing sort of like, hey, you got a better offer on the table. Can you can you make it a, a higher uh, offer like a bidding contest. So I would actually advise against this. Um, in the situation that you are in, uh, where you have two VCs competing, you are actually picking a partner to work with. So it's it's like kind of like dating where you have many suitors who want to go out with you. And do you want to make it into an outright contest? I think not. Uh, you want to talk to the main VC, the one you want really badly to, to work with. Talk about the situation, talk about why you feel uh, that the current offer isn't fair uh, and then try to negotiate there. But I wouldn't push it to the limit. You want to cre create a balance here where you are already like uh, signaling that who you want to work with and you're not gonna go to this other person again but these are sort of the conditions that you can move forward with so often uh, there won't be much room to negotiate for better terms but it always makes sense to try out to find a compromise on the terms especially if the amount and valuation is a lot lower than what your peers are raising um, so you make you need to make sure that you're talking to other founders who have recently raised money because then you can know what are the terms that people are getting uh, and how much negotiation leverage you could have so that you can make sure that you are doing everything to secure the right terms, not the best ones, but the right ones for you. So the big factor that you can't do much about is the timing, like when in 2013 we had that favorable situation of Supercell being just bought when we started going to meet VCs. That was a really good time. We had a really good team, really good idea, and we raised 8 million in that A round. So in a favorable market, the valuation will be a lot higher. Like I remember these days when there was this saying that Helsinki, you can put two million on top of valuation if you're based in Helsinki, like a Helsinki bonus. That was like 2013, 14. Um, so for instance, when all the investors are chasing the hot new thing, uh, it, you're going to get a lot of better, better valuation. So to summarize things, if you have two investors who want to invest uh, and you're in a happy spot there, um, I would always pick the one that you really want to work with versus the one that is giving 
the better terms. The next question comes from Chad. How much is too much for a seed round to raise? Is 12 million too much for a seed round without any revenue? Uh, so that's a really good question, Chad. I think just today I was reading about this new seed round that was announced by Spike Games, which is a Turkey-based uh, mobile developer who raised a seed round of 55 million. So yeah, when raising funds and when trying to figure out how much you could raise, there are some industry standards that you should be following. So I'm going to focus here on the answer on the pre-revenue and pre-metric stage where you still haven't launched a game or soft launched a game so that I can cover most of the factors that matter in that stage. Um, so if you have an inexperienced team with no or very limited minimal industry experience, uh, I would say that the seed round, raising any seed round will be quite impossible. What matters to investors so much in the pre-number stage is that you have the experienced team members who have seen success and have been building things for several years in gaming. The, the, in, a, in a sense, the remedy for this inexperienced team is to recruit experienced people to your team. Of course, you, you might say that, hey, we're not an attractive team for anybody to join. But I, I think this is, this is where you need to start versus going to the investors when you still don't have capable team members who can really shine when the investors start looking at like, who are they backing? Do they know what they're doing? Um, and of course, like you're going to be ending up giving up equity in your company to these people, most likely when they join. But all of a sudden, you might actually be eligible for a, a seed round. So when I was doing my first gaming startup, I started approaching investors in 2007. We were a team of very inexperienced game developers who were trying to build a virtual world for feature phones. Back then, there weren't any gaming VCs, so I was pitching to investors who didn't know anything about the game industry. Often these meetings didn't lead nowhere. I was going through the deck. They were asking questions. Uh, unfortunately, I don't really recall what those questions were, but it felt more or less that they didn't know what they're looking at. And I didn't know what I was looking at as well, like to be venture backable in a sense. So I, I spent almost two years fundraising to get that seed round until early 2009, I managed to raise a seed round of 550,000 euros from two Finnish VC investors. So here I will elaborate on why it took so long to raise the seed round. So first, I didn't know if my company was interesting to investors and they didn't know if my company was interesting for them or they might have known, but they were trying to figure out gaming. So nowadays, when there are dozens of these gaming specialized investors and venture funds, uh, you can get to a no or a yes much more quicker. You don't have to have several meetings where they're, they're trying to figure out things. So also, there are so many venture 
backed gaming companies out there. Uh, and you can just reach out to those founders to ask about their thoughts on you being ready for an investment. Uh, the second thing is that after two years and going through some like 50 investors, I finally found somebody who wanted badly to get into gaming. And I was the first gaming founder that they'd met. Now, I think they really liked me and my drive to build the company. So they made this leap of faith investment into the company. They were also investing their own money, basically being a VC who is investing one person's cash, being the only limited partner. Uh, so they could do this kind of leap of faith investments. So VCs usually don't take that much risk. So it will be hard to find investors who will be betting on an experienced team. So angel investors are different. Uh, with them, especially with an inexperienced team, they will want to have a lower valuation since they're taking a lot of risks. Um, so, but once you have an experienced team, raising millions in a pre-number pre stage becomes much more doable. So you asked specifically if 12 million is doable before you have revenues. Well, personally, I think it's way too much. Uh, and I've seen these kind of raises happening with the most sought after teams in gaming. Uh, I just gave out this Turkish example. There are others in the US who've raised with the team and a pitch deck, tens of millions. I think it's way too early if you don't really have a prototype, if you don't have a lot of um, tests going on and you know that it's gonna work. But yet the gaming scene is really hot right now and especially with the, the blockchain stuff happening, valuations are a lot higher than they used to be. So by today's standards, an experienced team with lots of experience from shipping games, marketing games, running teams uh, with a great game concept, with a prototype. Uh, I think the first money should be in and around 1 million. Uh, that's usually how I feel like it's a safe bet for the team as well to, to start working with investors, get them on board and then, you know, take a few steps further where the game goes into soft launch, maybe an alpha stage, and then you raise another round. But for an inexperienced team, like I would say 200,000 uh, as a raise, as the first money in, is where the reality is, I would say. Uh, but like you do want to look at fundraising as a process where you will come back to that process later on in the company's journey. It's just, you know, the first money in and then you get to the next stage. Um, so many studios that are on this venture-backed road, they raise more money every 12 to 18 months. Uh, you, you're graduating from one stage to the next, from having a team to having a game launch to growing the game. Uh, each stage requires capital to grow. So don't raise too much at once, uh, I would say. That's, that's a, a prime example. So why not? Uh, because you want to alleviate the investor's risks early on. 
by taking things one step at a time. The investor can put more money in later once you've proven things out. Uh, so if you plan to raise 12 million and you plan to use the money to hire the team, to build the game, to launch the game, to market the game, there's like hundreds of steps there where things can go wrong. So I would instead break it down to several smaller raises in the next uh, five years and plan on what these smaller amounts would look like through milestones that you're hitting to be able to raise the next round. I, I think that's more stable way to do it. And then thinking about dilution, of course, like how much you're giving out to the investors. That's something you also want to think about and plan. Uh, it usually means like 15 to 20 percent is going out to the investors in the first race, sometimes more. But then if you are smart about it, you want to uh, chop it down into stages where you will be diluting that you're talking to the investors that, hey, this is this is actually how we want to dilute in the future uh, for the next five years. We're going to raise three rounds uh, each time. We're going to be giving out 15 to 20 percent. Uh, so this is like our plan. What do you think about it? And that, that's going to really show that you're you're an experienced team. You're thinking about these things. The next question comes from Mary, who asks, I'm curious about raising with a safe note, but some investors who I've talked to are asking for us to raise a price round. As a founder, what should my opinion be on which is better for me and a company as I'm now raising my first round? So thanks for asking this question, Mary. Um, first off, let's talk about the difference between a safe and a price round. And then I'll give examples on where you'd want to go with which of these options. So there are two prevailing instruments for fundraising for startups. Um, you have the safe, which stands for a simple agreement for future equities, uh, which was created and is freely distributed by this uh, San Francisco and uh, Silicon Valley based accelerator, Y Combinator. Um, and it's also like a European uh, equivalent for this is the convertible note. So both the note and the safe, they are loan instruments uh, that are are meant to be like uh, a first step of money coming in before you actually give out equity to, to investors uh, in a price round. So with these, uh, these loan instruments, you're basically borrowing money from an investor against the promise that in a future funding round or any kind of liquidity event where the company is bought, uh, there's an exit, or maybe uh, an IPO to a stock exchange that then then this loan would be converted into shares in the company. Usually the, the notes and the safes also have a conversion date set into them so that they, they can't exist as a, as a loan for forever. <laughs> like it usually is like a few years down the line where there has to be a conversion happening. Um, so why is the convertible an attractive format 
of financing in the very early stages. So here are a few reasons. I, I think the biggest reason is that you won't have this long negotiation phase where you are talking to the investors and their lawyers with your lawyers. You're you're making new a new shareholder agreement. You're doing the investment agreement, uh, setting up things. There's a lot of uh, small minor details there but with the note you're just you know there's no uh this kind of setup happening where the company is made into a company where the investors have a lot of oversight and uh, creating the the note and the safe is pretty cheap because there are so many templates out there so you only need to check that the paper is ready to be sent by your legal help so it's super inexpensive just one document, a few pages long. I actually have uh, a convertible note template on the Elite Game Developer site, which a lot of people have been using. And it's also flexible since each investor signs a note as soon as they're committing and coming on board. So unlike a price round where all the investors are putting in the money at the same time, they're signing the same papers, uh, the startups could actually issue like, you know, half a dozen notes over several months to to interesting investors who show up. So they're just put, taking money, more money in, in smaller chunks along the way. So in an essence, this safe or the convertible note is like a bridge financing in instrument, which awaits a price round to happen at a later stage. So when the price round actually happens, the company goes and raises a round and then there's a need to do all this paperwork, the new shareholder agreements. There's a board of directors might be created, new share classes issued, whatever. Um, then when you have that price round, uh, which is, is the model where the investor comes in with the cash, uh, and new shares are created in the company. Uh, with the price round, the investor will want this oversight. Uh, for instance, the investor will want to receive information rights to the company so that they they get information on what is happening in the company. Um, and also they will have, have the supervision over any kind of exit. So the founders can't decide to sell the company without informing and getting a green light from their investors. So I've been doing startup fundraising as an entrepreneur as and an investor uh, over 15 years now. And the investors don't really want control of the company, even though it feels like, oh, there's a lot of, you know, shareholder agreements where the investors get a lot of things, but they don't actually want the company. Uh, to run the company. Uh, of course, you know, the, those papers are created for those situations where things go really wrong, that the founders were actually evil or crazy or whatever, or they just suddenly left the company. So then the investor can uh, save the company because they have that control over the board, everything. They can appoint a new CEO. Uh, they can sort of fix things when things go bad. These have happened. Like usually people think that the, the investors are the bad guys, but there's so many situations where actually the founders did really bad things as well. If you just look up like 
the history of uh, tech startups. There's so many example cases of this. So as I mentioned, the paperwork gives the investors a lot of protection for any situation where the company is left uh, without anybody at the helm. Uh, and this doesn't happen with the safe and the convertible note. And that's usually why the investors, many of them, want to do these price rounds. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll now share an example where I think the safe and the convertible note is the way to go. So when you are in the early stages, you have two options, raise from the VCs or raise from angels or a combination of both. So if you're mainly raising from angels, the note is the best way to bring in people who don't want or need to have that kind of supervision and the control. Um, the benefit for founders is that they can raise small amounts with these notes, as I mentioned. So I've previously been involved in an angel round where four angels, me including, invested 12.5 thousand euros, uh, which total up to 50,000 euros uh, into a startup, into a games company. And the good thing for the founders was that they could use this template that I've shared on the Elite Game Developers site. They just changed the terms to reflect the right amounts to all these people who were investing. And then they sent them over like DocuSign to be signed. And then we wired the money to the company and they were they could concentrate on making the game and not fiddling around with paperwork at this stage. Uh, they were also in the position that they could afford to give out direct shares to newly joined team members. Because like in many countries, and this is also in Finland, that if you do a price round, uh, you your all the shares that you just give out to new joiners would be taxed at this high valuation that was set in the price round. Uh, so because you're doing a loan instrument, there has not yet been uh, a legal valuation set for the company. So the shares are still basically like they don't have any value. It's just a, a company that doesn't have a valuation. But eventually the company, any company for that matter, who's been raising with these safes and convertible notes, they will want to do a price round where the previous investments are converted into shares in the company, you don't really want people to be uh, hanging around for years with these safe notes, um, where they're, they're just waiting to be become owners in the company. Uh, so the price round usually happens when these institutional investors, especially the, the VCs get involved. Uh, and of course, we, we can put it in another way, if you're raising from a VC fund, who is leading the round and they're getting like significant ownership like 15 to 20 percent in that round they will want to do that price round because they then do need the oversight of the company they have enough ownership that it makes sense for them to do a price round always so to summarize mary if this is the first money you are raising uh, picking us a safe note versus a price round really depends on who is investing and what do they want to do. Um, so if the if there's a group of investors, angels, VCs, uh, but there's nobody who really wants to clearly lead the round and set the terms, 
the best option is to do a safe, since then you don't need to state who is leading. But if there is a clear lead investor who prefers price round, I think it makes sense to, to bring them on through this price round. Uh, since you will be setting up things for, for these future funding rounds, like in the previous question that I answered, this is a, a long rail road where you're going to be racing several times. So having those investors on board as partners, giving them the oversight through uh, this shareholder agreement totally makes sense to me. The final question of today's episode goes to Diago. So Diago asks, uh, we are a hypercasual studio and we'd want to start making blockchain games. After studying and playing a lot of the games in blockchain gaming, it's hard to know if we should build our own integration or use some of the providers of these technologies. Uh, to what extent are you seeing existing game developers doing these integrations? when they want to seriously try out to make a blockchain game? I think it, this is an extremely great question, Diego. Um, I'll share some ways that I'm looking at this in early 2022. Uh, the first is to look at uh, this from the angle of, uh, of you guys wanting to experiment in blockchain or are you planning to go fully into blockchain, which means that this is like a pivot where you brand yourself as the blockchain gaming company. But let's, let's talk about these scenarios. So if you are a game studio that just wants to experiment, uh, there are many ways to do this. Um, since you are a hyper casual studio, uh, you could look at the concepts that you've already been working on. Uh, could there be a good fit for uh, NFT collectibles in one of your games or perhaps a way to make uh, play to earn work? So when looking at the current blockchain market, there are a few games that are great examples like Panzer Dogs. Uh, there's uh, Titan Arena. Um, they're very mobile native games which have incorporated blockchain elements. To, to somewhat change the meaning of the game uh, for the players who are coming in. So with one of your concepts, you could start exploring block blockchain by using some external tools to set up uh, NFTs that are then visible in the game. Uh, or you could build a version out of that game, which enables play to earn. Um, so in an essence, you're not radically changing what your game is doing right now. It's it's as easy to get into regarding user experience. You don't need to set up uh, a wallet before you can launch the game, but it's very optional to participate in the blockchain side of that gaming, the NFTs or the play to earn. But if you're planning to do a full blockchain pivot, uh, I think then you need to really change a lot of things. You want first off to be, bring a lot of knowledge in-house by either hiring people or yourself being super smart and spending half of your days just studying what's going on. Because you're, you're gonna be needing to set up a lot of technology, uh, the backend that handles all sorts of blockchain transactions between uh, your providers, like if you're using the Polygon network, uh, 
you need to figure out how that works, how does it work with your game, what does it mean. Uh, then you need to start building also this community of players, traders, in investors uh, for these NFTs. Um, there are so many things that I'm not going to even go into here because it's such such a, a vast topic to cover. But my main suggestion is to start reading, studying, playing the games, looking at what's going on, the new projects that are coming up in blockchain gaming as much as you can. The, I, I would say that this industry is moving so fast compared to like what free to play what happened like early 2010s with free to play, which was very simple and uh, uh, easy to pick up and, and start uh, trying out things. Here we have so much technology involved, different different things going on that you can utilize. Um, so like, I, I think everything that was happening 2010 in blockchain gaming is sort of will be out of fashion pretty soon because things are moving so quickly. So it's both exciting, but it requires a lot of attention and smarts to, to keep up with. So my suggestion to you is to look at what makes sense for your team at this moment and then take the first steps by researching blockchain gaming and then making decisions on what you want to do there. And, and since you're a hyper-casual studio, uh, I would not pivot outside of hyper-casual right now because it's really good uh, uh, testing bed as well since you're, you're good at doing quick testing, quick prototyping. So that's a big advantage for you when you go into blockchain. So, and also uh, one thing I've been noticing with a lot of developers moving to blockchain as that they haven't really thoroughly planned the steps they need to take to roll out a blockchain game. It's again like hundreds of steps that you need to take. So most of the games launched now in early 2022 are made by teams who are highly capable in blockchain tech, uh, but they don't usually have a long games industry experience or background. I think a lot of those teams have been coming up now where people from gaming have gone to blockchain, but they're still uh, working on their first title. So that way will come later in 2022, I believe. Um, so to summarize, Diego, I would look at the projects out there and map out the challenges that you will face as a team that is new to crypto and how you can improve your skills in the areas that are required. Blockchain gaming is moving so quickly and there are so many experienced game teams getting into blockchain games uh, that you'll really need to show effort to have everything in place to meet the demands. So that was all the questions for this episode. Um, for future episodes, it would be awesome to get your questions in. So if you can go to elitegamedevelopers.com slash ask me anything and type in your questions and I'll, I'll get them answered in a future episode. Yeah, that's everything for this time. See you again out there. Bye-bye.